Thank you. Uh, good evening. Um, welcome to the, yeah, the third week. Just want to remind you, if you have any questions throughout of things that I've spoken about, um, then there is paper on the front. So if you want to grab some paper, you can. Um, or if you want to text in your messages, then as usual, the, uh, text num the uh, phone number is up, will be up on the screen. I think it's on the next slide. Um, and that is a... Nope. Oh, that's fine. It's at the end, is it the end of the PowerPoint? Hmm. Odd. Um, well, there will be a number, and we will get the number to you at the, probably near the end. So if you write down your questions, then text them in, but it's a brand new number, new SIM, if you haven't been here before. Um, it means that basically we don't have any of your numbers stored. We don't know who asks any questions. And on the last evening, the fifth one, then we'll be asking, answering those questions that have been texted in and written down. Um, so yeah, good evening. We're going to be looking tonight at the whole topic of sort of sexuality, specifically looking at sort of homosexuality. How does the church uh, look into a topic uh, where we have a whole new sort of social ethic looking at sex and same sex and what, how do we deal with that and how do we, um, what does the Bible say about it first and foremost, um, but then how do we communicate that with love and how do we communicate the love of Christ to everybody, no matter what their sexuality. Um, so in this What About, uh, we're looking at sexuality from a biblical view, um, and that means if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're listening online and you're not uh, a follower of Jesus, this isn't us trying to impose a biblical morality on you and your lifestyle. Um, if you're here and you're saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm all in, I believe that the, the uh, Bible is the authoritative word of God, um, then that looks a bit different. We believe that actually... Uh, the Bible states what we should be living in our lives, what God wants that's the best for our lives. Um, but if you're not, then, and you're a guest this evening or listening online, then just you're so welcome. And if there's anything else that piques your interest, um, find out more about Jesus first and foremost, because you need to work out whether what he says is worth it before you work out what he says about your sexuality. First and foremost is that Jesus is the Lord of your life, um, and that's where we start. And if you are a disciple today, you've made that decision, great, then we'll move on. But if you're not, um, then listen to what we're saying. If you're interested about anything, ask any questions. But um, first and foremost is we want to know that um, Jesus is, we want you to know that Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. A couple of book recommendations before we get started. Uh, the first one is this one called by Sam Albury. It's called Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, Sam showed the transgender one last week. It's a very small little book. Um, and it's really, really good, so make a note of that one. And the other one, which is a little bit thicker, is by Kevin DeYoung, and it's called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Both of these are really good books. Um, have a look at them, wrestle with them. They're tough reading and points. Um, and some of the stuff I'll be saying tonight is pretty tough as well, and it's hard-hitting. But it's something that we need to get to grips with, because actually these people out there who say, oh, I can't go into a church because I'm gay, or I can't go into a church and be loved by God because of, the media puts forward that we don't care about people because of their sexuality. We need them to know that's not true. That's not true. And it starts by us understanding what the Bible says. And from there, just loving and loving and loving. So obviously, as Sam said last week, when we're looking at gender, we can't cover everything. We would be here all too long, and you don't want to hear me listening, talking for sort of three hours. Um, so if you've got any questions, do text them in. So we live in an age uh, in which culture is dictated by media, and the truth is promoted by what the media states. Now, this may be 
This may seem a bit odd to you, but actually it's not too dissimilar to the culture that we found in the UK about a century ago. About a century ago, um, the position of authority, whether that be a politician, whether that be a lord, a royal, a newspaper, would state what was the truth, and from the lack of information around, the general populace believed. The difference nowadays is that there is such a surplus of information. We live in a digital age which has everything at our fingertips and has so many different opinions and thoughts. It means that media has to cut through the static and then people cling to it because they want truth. And so that means often people just listen and hear and cling to what they hear. And you see this in certain far-right journalism, uh, cuts through sort of modernist liberal views by whether it's fear on immigration or whether it's fear on the NHS or whatever that is, you know, that's one way in which a media cuts through all the background static. And then in the current generation, you see that as sort of a truth that says, if love is love, how can it be wrong? And if there is a God, and there may be a God, there may not, you know, you may believe there's a God, but I don't, but that's fine. If there is that God, and he is loving, then surely how can love be wrong? And that's one of the lies that our media tells us, and our culture tells us that as long as it feels good, as long as it feels loving and no one's getting hurt, that must be fine and that can't be wrong. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say as long as it feels good, it's fine. Because actually we know that if you're a Christian today, there is a God who has a higher moral standard than we live to. Because he's the one who created the moral standard. He is the moral standard. So when we come at this whole topic of same sex, we are quite, it's quite difficult because we're saying there's a God who has a moral standard going against a culture that says love is love no matter what it looks like, whether it's between a man and a woman, a man and a man, a woman and a woman. As long as it's love... Why does it matter? And we see in TV and films and growth are, are showing that sexuality doesn't matter. Arthur, which is a corker of a TV program from when I was a kid, um, showed, currently showed its first gay uh, marriage between the teacher, Mr. Ratburn, and his partner, um, who I don't know the name of. And one of the children proclaims, it's a new world. And that's the world that we live in. And that's the world we're grasping for. Hugh Grant took part in a drama called A Very English Scandal. It takes place in the 70s with Liberal MP Jeremy Thorpe showing the scandalous nature of a gay affair that he denied. And even though it was in the 70s, we look back now and culture says, oh, wasn't that so foolish? I'm so glad we've come on in the last 30 years. In pop culture, Elton John and David Furnish have got two kids from surrogates. Um, and we see you know, that plastered all over. Um, you know, Rocket Man is coming out at the moment. Elton John, a gay icon. We see gay marriage coming through in the commons, and anyone who stands against it, it's, it's seen as taboo. It's seen you can't stand against that, because as long as someone is in love, how dare you stand against that and say otherwise? And finally, in the church, we see openly gay vicars, some of them living celibate lives, some living with partners. Uh, I, think in, I think around Brighton, actually, there is, there's a, a lesbian um, vicar with her partner, uh, her wife now, um, living in there. And you know, so we need to decide, as a church, what do we believe? And what does that mean when we look out to a world that needs Jesus and needs a, fa needs a faith to build around? What does that faith look like? Because we're all saying different things.
So we live in a world that proclaims that this is the norm. However, in traditional church, we don't see that. How many openly gay members of Christ church are there? I don't know, but it's just something to think about. How many sort of openly gay couples do we see coming through on a Sunday morning? Do we see that as a reality in our church? If not, why? Is that because maybe Helsham doesn't have as many? Or is it because actually we're not open and people don't feel welcome? I'm not saying one of them is the answer and one of them isn't. I just think that we should be really thinking it through and praying it through as to how open are we and how many friendships do we have with people who are very different to ourselves. So I'm just going to give some definitions and then we'll look on to sort of um, same-sex attraction as a term and then we'll take a first break and then we'll come back on some others and stuff afterwards. So some definitions to start with. Simple one that probably most of you will wear. Homosexual, sexually attracted to a person or people of one's own sex. So if you're a, a woman, then you're sexually attracted to women. If you're a man, you're sexually attracted to men. Sort of very simple on that one. Uh, next one is uh, bisexual. And so you're sexually attracted not exclusively to a person's gender, um, but to the person, so that's men and women, that works within, I put brackets binary afterwards. That basically means that you see that there are two specific genders um, and that those two are the, are the two genders that you are attracted to, so a man or a woman, um, which is different to the third one, which is pansexual. And pansexual is not limited uh, to choice of gender, but that could be um, any sort of sex, gender, gender identity. It's pan, it's wide. It means that um, you uh, may be a man who is sexually attracted to the person depending, doesn't matter on their gender, their genitals, no matter what, um, that actually it's down to the person and the individual. And then third, uh, fourthly, we've got asexual, which is without sexual feeling or association. So these are people who um, don't have sort of sexual attraction um, in the way that we would see it in ourselves. That doesn't mean that they, they may still experience attraction, but it's not realized in a sort of sexual way. It's a sort of different situation. I think that comes in the next bit. So those are some definitions that we're going to be looking at for tonight. And I'm going to use those throughout the night sort of as I talk. So just get them in your head. Um, so when I say pansexual, you know what that means. Um, is it interesting with pansexual? Uh, pansexual and bisexual often are used interchangeably. Um, however, for a pansexual person, they would see a bisexual person as incredibly limited in their view. That actually that they can only look, look at those two genders. Um, because they would see, well, it's a person. It doesn't matter on the sex or the gender. It's about the person. Whilst for bisexual people, actually, they are a lot of the time greatly discriminated by the homosexual community because they're seen as greedy or they're seen as they want it all. And so, you know, why can't you stick to one gender, you know? And it's, it's a very tough sort of situation because... All of these are happening interchangeably. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes as Christians, wrongly so, we can view it as it's almost like an us and them, that actually we've got a problem with like LGBTQ together. But actually that's not the case. Because within LGBTQ there's disagreement, there's fight, there's, quar there's quarrels. Within us there's fights, there's quarrels. We're all people trying to live life together and trying to work out what that looks like to share a world together with differing races, with different ages, with differing genders, with different identities. And so that's just something interesting to point out. So why in this talk am I talking about same-sex attraction? Um, I will specifically be using the term same-sex attraction as opposed to gay. Um, 
is it the same term? Am I being sort of just a bit twee and just using something because it sounds a bit more, you know, fancy, same-sex attraction? Well, the reason why um, I'm doing that is because it's based off of a lie that culture tells us that Sam um, sort of touched on a couple of weeks ago and last week. And the lie is that sex is God. And because sex is God, it dictates your identity. So I can say, hi, I'm Owen, comma, and I'm straight, or I'm heterosexual. Hi, I'm Elton, and I'm gay, or I'm homosexual. That is what dictates your identity. And this is not the primary identity of every, any living being on the world. This is the identity that culture says matters about you. Your attraction and your genitals define you, but God says no. That's not what defines you. God says, I define you. And so if you're here this evening as a, as a Christian, whether you are a, a heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, your identity is you are a redeemed child of God. And if you don't know Jesus today, there is a heavenly Father who loves you and wants to know you regardless of your sexuality. The Bible doesn't talk in terms of gay, bisexual, lesbian. It talks in terms of sexual attraction and acts in a healthy place of marriage and in unhealthy places. And we'll look at that in the next section. So we're going to now stop and take our first break. And there's going to be some questions up on the board. I'm going around here. Uh, and if you have any questions, just you know, wave at me and I'll come over. Okay, if we'd like to draw our conversations to a close and sort of come back together. So what we're going to do now um, is we're going to start sort of in, well, the best place to start, which is the Bible. Um, so the next section is what I've called a biblical theology of same-sex attraction, which is a very poncy way of saying. Uh, we're tracking the theme of same-sex attraction through Scripture. Um, so we're not picking out the bits that are nice and the bits that sort of fit to what we want to hear. Um, the Bible is linear. That basically means that it goes through history um, and we've got to read it sort of as such, that we have the law in the Old Testament and then Jesus comes after that to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill the law. And when we look at sort of, we track whatever it is, whether it's salvation, whether it's uh, worship, whether it's same-sex attraction, we've got to track it through scripture um, because we can see then how it unfolds through that linear story. So when... Queer theologians, and that's an official title, you've got different types of theologians, um, and one of the sort of brands of liberal the um, theology is queer theology. Um, and when they come to unpack the Bible, often they'll state arguments that says things like, culture has moved on since the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And because of that, the comments made by biblical writers can't be transferred into our common culture. Haven't we moved on from that? Or they might say, the Old Testament is not necessary anymore. We just need the New Testament because the law is done. And Jesus doesn't like law. Jesus came to get rid of it. And so because of that, we look at the New Testament. And you know what? Jesus never expressly states anything about homosexuality. So surely it's fine. Or they might say, actually, God says that same-sex attraction and acting on that is perfectly fine, but you've got to look at it through a very specific lens, 
And when you look through that lens, it brings out all these complex threads. And when you see that, you show that God liberates people. He does it with his people in the Exodus. He liberates his people from sin. So surely, wouldn't God want to liberate love? And that's a very dangerous way to read the Bible. Because you take what you want, and from that you put together a theology that fits to your, your state instead of saying, well, God, what do you want first and foremost for human living? And then aligning yourself to that. So we're just going to have a look at some passages through Scripture. I'm going to warn you, some of it's not going to be fun. Some of it's going to be quite challenging. Um, but I think it's right that we take Scripture at its word and we take Scripture seriously. And so because of that, we're going to go through um, a couple of interesting passages. So we're going to start with Genesis 2. If you've got a Bible and you want to go to there, you can. If not, it will be on the screen, but it is quite small. Oh, it's, actually, it's not too bad when you read it sort of up there. Um, so Genesis 2, 18 to 24. Then God said, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had made from um, and the rib that the Lord God had made, taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, "This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Therefore, this is in Genesis, right at the start. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother, father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what we read from that, I've highlighted through and read. It was not good for man to be alone. Man on his own, as I'm sure men you can say, you get up to lots of problems when you're on your own. There was not a helper fit for him. In the whole of the creation so far, and that includes man, there was not a helper fit for him. So God creates woman from man. Therefore, and therefore is really important in the Bible, a man shall leave his mother and father. Genesis shows that this complementary nature between man and woman, that they, together, they work together and they express something glorious of the image of God in a way that Adam alone can't. But together they express this image of God and they become one flesh together. They complement each other and they bond in this union together, this sexual union, showing that God creates and God is for sex in terms of he is, you know, not opposed to. He is for sex. But that sex is for marriage. Sex is for this physical union between man and woman, this complementary yet diverse pair. And so then we move on. And we see that God then creates man and woman. But then in Leviticus, we come across these two verses, which are tough and are not comfortable in our current culture. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a man as you were as you with a woman, it is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, 
Both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Not nice reading. But when it comes to this passage, we do need to realize two things. One, we don't live in a pre-exile Israelite theocracy. And basically what I mean by that is we don't live in that state. We don't live in a state as that was then. Therefore, when we look at that last line in Leviticus 20.13, they shall surely be put to death, um, we don't follow that through. As Christians, I will happily come and say, I do not believe in the death penalty for homosexuality. Because I don't think that that is currently what we do in this country. I don't think that's how the, the post-Jesus, that is what we, how we see that area of the law. However... Jesus comes to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And that means that though the civic punishment of death no longer stands and is relevant in our context, Christ doesn't abolish God's moral standard for mankind. And so when the Bible states that the act of homosexual sex is an abomination, that means it's against the natural order that God sets up in Genesis 1 and 2, and it means it's not in God's plan for a physical union and for the growth of human kind in that way and that's where I want to caveat where I, what I said earlier if you are here as a orthodox evangelical Christian which means that basically you believe that the Bible, you take it as it is, you believe it's the word of God then probably what I've said won't surprise you if you are not, that may have shocked you and actually, if you're listening online, I don't know who's listening online, but that may have shocked you with what I just said. But actually, first and foremost, you need to know um, of who Christ is, who Christ says he is, why that matters, and then because of that, why your, worth is, your life is worth living for him, and that means sacrificing things in your life. And so when Sam talks about laying down the things that we want to do because they feel good, but actually Christ says there's something better we say we submit to that because Christ is better. But that only works if you know that Christ is better. Christ is better for your life, and so because of that, we live in a way that God ordained. If you don't know who Christ is, find out who he is first, because that will change your life. I remember I said earlier that um, queer theologians state that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. Um, although that's directly true, Jesus does mention actually the following in Mark 7 20 to 23. He says what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so Jesus states this list of what defiles a person. And Jesus was a Jewish man. So where would he get his teaching as to what God sees as an abomination? What does God class as sexual immorality? It's going to be the Old Testament law that he comes to fulfill. And Jewish writings around the time, you know, we have Jewish writings that have been found in, uh, in the Dead Sea around that area, in Qumran, um, Josephus and other Jewish historians of the time. You know, they showed culturally that there was a view that same sex was not part of God's plan and God, not part of the culture that they lived in. So when people say Jesus wasn't talking on that, actually, that's probably not true. 
Um, when Jesus talks about that, he uses the Greek word pornea, which is where we get pornography from. And it's, it's immoral sexual act, immoral sexual thoughts that defile you. And that comes straight from the Hebrew words that used as an abomination in Leviticus 18. So it's probably very similar. And so Jesus, and then later Paul, shows that all sexual activity outside of marriage is immoral. And if the union of marriage is a sign between Jesus and his bride, the church, as we found out over the last two weeks, if marriage is between two complementary yet different genders, then we must conclude in this section by seeing that for a Christian, gay sex, lesbian sex, is sinful, and it falls outside of God's blueprint for marriage. However, I must be clear that nowhere in the Bible does it say that sexual sin is unforgivable, that is different to other sins. As Sam said last week, we can sometimes make sexual sin out to be something dirty and something worse than it is. And actually, we don't compare it to sort of the small lies that we tell or, you know, we tweak the numbers on our tax or, you know, we gossip a bit. We don't compare the two. Because we live in a fallen world, we're drawn to short-term pleasures. Sex is one of those things that God created to be beautiful, but we've taken it and made it into something that satisfies our fleshly cravings. It means that we look for passion and arousal in different areas of life that are different to what God states are good for us in his design. For some people, that's pornography. For some people, it's an unhealthy view of money. And for some people, it's same-sex attraction and same-sex sex. And if you're a Christian today and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, I want to say to you that you're not odd, you're not strange, you have no disease that we need to pray out. That was a big thing publicly a little while ago. You pray the gay away. I want to say that is not right. But at the same time, there are fleshly cravings that need to be submitted to Jesus, the same as everyone else. The same as if I have, you know, I want, I, I'm a, but if I'm a compulsive liar, then I need to submit that to Jesus. If I've got an addiction to pornography, I need to submit that to Jesus. Same thing. If I am having attractions to the, to the opposite sex outside of marriage, then I need to submit it to Jesus. So we're going to take a pause there. I've said a lot in that time, um, I think. And well, I hope I have anyway. And um, so we're going to take some time, look at the other two questions, the other some more questions. Um, and if there's anything I've said, please text it in. We could do with some more questions. Um, but yeah, have another talk amongst yourselves. And if there's anything you want to know, just give me a wave. Right, if we'd like to draw back together again, and we'll just go on to our sort of final section before we have the last bit of discussion and then close on for tonight. Um, When I was looking about this evening, I was thinking about it. I thought, you know what, though? I can tell you all the biblical truths, you know, as much as I think, you know, they are in line with biblical truth. But you know where we always get caught up. And that's, but isn't it just a bit unfair? I don't know about you, but that's often where I get caught. I can know the facts. I can know the truth. But sometimes you think, well, isn't it just a bit unfair? How can I say I can find someone as a heterosexual man, but they can't? 
How come my sexual desires, if they're running rampant, can be gratified in my husband and wife, husband or wife, but theirs can't? It's so easy to speak from this side of the table, isn't it? And to say as the church, no. We can, but you can't. And so we're going to unpack some of that um, in a couple of minutes. But that's really the heart of the last section. It's not um, sort of formal truth in that way, although it is. It's also how do we love, how do we come alongside when also actually that is our role to say that that isn't God's plan. And if you're a, you know, heterosexual couple, you've got to realize if you're coming alongside someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction, there could be some real difficulties there if you're saying, no, you've got to hold on to your desires, whilst also at the same time you can't keep your hands off your wife, which is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but you've got to realize that that is, a, that is a tough disconnect to have. And you've got to be able to love someone through that. And it's just something that, as I've been going through this more and more, it's just reminded me that we need to be so, so careful of showing our kids what Christian values look like. We need to teach them that Jesus, first and foremost, loved sinners. Because it's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. Dan Savage, who's this... Um, Human rights um, spokesperson says this thing, and it's really, it's heartbreaking. I read it to Cy the other day. He says, The dehumanizing bigotry set forth from the lips of faithful Christians gives your straight kids a license to verbally abuse, humiliate, and condemn gay children they encounter at school. They fill your gay children with suicidal despair, and you have the nerve to ask me to be more careful with my words. And that made me so sad, not only because I know that's not what Christ wants, but because I know that that's what's happening in the church. Not just in the church, but in families in general, and it's not right. And so when I see, you know, young people or older people struggling with this, I get the confusion from my own personal story. I get the heartache of not being sure who you are, knowing that if you were to come out as who you are, would people accept you? Would people love you? Or would you just be pushed to the side? The statistics of suicide between heterosexual and homosexual people is shakingly, heartbreakingly different. And I don't, there's never been a study that shows that in the church. But if I'm honest, I don't know whether it would be that much different. Because... Most of us can't empathize with same-sex attraction. If you are a straight person, it's not your fault. You just can't. But you know what? You can empathize with a sexual desire or any desire that you know God doesn't want you to give in to. And so because of that, there's that weird pull. And that's, that pull is made true in Christ, made full in Christ, and one day we will be made whole in him fully. As Sam said last week, there's this weird disconnect that we are made whole in Christ now, but also we are being made whole and will be made fully whole in him. We understand the pain as Christians of living in 
in a place that actually, and in this country, more and more so, we know what it's like to live in a place which doesn't quite accept us, doesn't quite want us to be around, doesn't want us to have our views. Sometimes that's what it can feel like if you are struggling with same-sex attraction in the church. And we also need to be careful that we don't have double standards. That we have heterosexual couples in the church who are not married and who are living together and sleeping together. But we're partnering with them and we're showing them who Christ is and you know, we're showing them that actually God has a picture for marriage and what that looks like. But actually when they come through the door, me, me, Chris and Nick were just having this conversation at the back. You know, when they come through the door and they say, oh, we know we're a couple but we're not married, we go, oh, that's fine. But if two gay guys came in holding hands, would we have the same approach? I'd like to think we would. I would like to think we would. But would there be a lot of, you know, you're talking to someone, but really you're thinking, oh, what's going on over there? We need to be able to show genuine affection and love because that's what Christ does. And that's Christ's heart, to show love and affection and acceptance. Acceptance of the people, not of the sin, but acceptance of the people, that they are beloved children of God, same as anyone else. There are things I'm not going to be able to answer specifically uh, tonight, as I've said. And some of the things that I'm not going to be able to answer, which I wrote down because Sam did this last week and I quite liked it, because it means that if you, if you were wondering about any of these, write it down, type it in, and, and, or whatever. Um, I'll, we'll try and answer it on the last day. Things I won't be able to ask, answer. How do we as Christians approach non-believers who are in gay relationships or living out a life in same-sex attraction? If I am attracted to, same sex, to the same sex and a Christian, does this mean I can't find love? Wasn't Paul talking about a Greco-Roman gay relationship between young men and old men not living out consensual relationships and it looks completely different nowadays? What about Sodom and Gomorrah? So those are four questions that I have not got time to answer tonight, but if you want to know more, then please write them down, text them in, um, because we'll happily answer them on the fifth night. And if you don't text them in, we might just answer them anyway. <laughs> um, so what can I do? As a Christian today, or as you know, someone who is in church and wants to love people who are attracted to those of the same sex, um, who may believe everything and say yes to amen to everything I've said today, that marriage is between a man and a woman, um, that you know, same-sex um, sexual acts fall out of God's plan for perfect marriage, but how do we love and how do we include people of same-sex attraction in the church? I would say that these five points are true to anything that we say in that thing. How do we support um, people who have been recently widowed into the church? How do we support people who have been divorced into the church? How do we support people who have learning difficulties into the church? Those five points. The fourth one kind of goes more sort of around this area, but you know, all of them are good. Uh, so number one, make it easy to talk to. I'm of the view that we shouldn't have taboo in church. There are some things that we don't talk about, because we are sensitive to things that are going around us, but that's different to taboo. Taboo means, oh, no, we can't talk about that. I don't like that. If it's not taboo out in culture, we should be able to talk about it. It doesn't mean that we 
talk about absolutely everything, and we have appropriate places to talk. But it means if someone tells you something, you can't be like, <gasps> We've got to accept that, actually, people in this town are living in gay relationships and are living you know, with same-sex attraction, and we want them to know Christ. And so that means we can't <laughs> find it an odd thing to talk about. It has to be part of our everyday life that we accept that actually, just as you know, someone comes up and says that they are struggling with um, kleptomania, you know, we love and support them, and we can talk about those things. But as soon as it becomes sexual, we kind of get a bit, ooh. Because as British people, we often do. So we want to remove as much as we can the taboo in church. It doesn't mean that we're yelling about it. But we want to make it easy to talk about. Number two, that we're honoring singleness. I think it's a big thing, whether we're talking about um, celibacy in terms of someone who um, is uh, same-sex attraction, and so because of that, they're living a celibate life because they believe that actually they are not to be getting into relationships because of you know, physical intimacy, union, etc. They know exactly what we've been saying this evening, and they go, yep, that's fine. Um, whether they are you know, single because actually they are single, that is their calling in life, we need to honor singleness in a new and better way. I think we need to be not viewing it in terms of, oh, they haven't got married yet. Or they haven't quite found that person, have they? Because we've all said it. You know, I can fall into that, and I'm single. Well, I was single. I'm not single now. I have a girlfriend. Um, sorry. She's, she's probably going to listen as well, so that's really awkward. Um, Edit, we'll edit that bit out. <laughs> but when I was single, I said that about people. I said, oh, need to find you someone. No, we don't. Because you know who they've always been found? Jesus, and he's much better. We need to honor singleness. And that means that not only do we say it's a good thing, but also we realize the, the heartache that can come with singleness, the loneliness that can come with singleness that when you haven't got that other person maybe of an evening and you sit there in your room, because trust me, I've done it. Sounds really, really sad, but you know, when uh, I live with Andy and Brenda and Mark, and there have been times when, you know, before I was, I was with Catherine, actually, where I would just sort of sit there and I wouldn't know what to do with myself, because Mark would be out with Nan and Andy and Brenda would be out doing something, and I would just sit in my room and go, what, what, what am I meant to do? It was lonely. But actually, that brings on to the third point, to remember that church is family, and that you should never be alone if you're in church. And that means when we honor singleness, we're always looking to be like, do you want to come around? Do you want to come around for dinner? Do you want to go out? It's just a walk. We're just going out for a walk as a family. Do you want to come? Because church is family. And I think, actually, living with Andy and Brenda has been an incredible, incredible picture of that, because, you know... Dunk is often around. So Dunk's uh, one of the elders here, and he lives a celibate life. And he is just part of the family, isn't he, Mark? Like, he'll come around for just dinner, and he'll come on holiday. And it's awesome. And I love having Dunk around. It's great. And it's an amazing picture of honoring singleness and being family together. 
So just, just think of that. If there's, if, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, there's someone in the church who is living a celibate lifestyle because of same-sex attraction. Just in general, let's honor singleness. Let's be looking for those opportunities. If someone is single and, you know, do you want to come around for, for you know, holidays? Holidays, I know, are really tough if you're on your own. Things like that. Deal with biblical models of masculinity and femininity. We spoke about it last week. Sam spoke about it. You know, we're not saying... The boy plays with the action man. The girl plays with the Barbie. There's something wrong if it's the other way around. You know, I'm already going to cut out a bit before, so you know my story means that that was difficult, and that means that that brought up problems later. And so let's be careful, and let's make sure that we're not dealing with what culture says masculinity and femininity looks like. Let's look at what the Bible says masculinity and femininity looks like. When we look at the Bible... You've got the most men, manly men out there who are weeping with just joy or heartache. You've got women who are strong and leading armies. That's biblical masculinity and femininity. Not that we dictate what one is and one and one isn't. And number five, that we're providing good pastoral support. And that means officially, we have a great pastoral team here. I think they do an amazing job. But also it means that we are pastoral support because we're family. Because when I have a problem, one of the first people I go to is my dad. Because he's family, but he knows me. And he knows the things I'm going through. And he knows the situations that I'm in. Pastoral support should be your life groups. It should be your friendship groups. It should be, if needed, you know, the pastoral support on a sort of more official level. But let's make sure that we're a church that is rushing in to provide pastoral support. Not one that, you know, two months down the line, we have a conversation with someone and they go, oh, I was really struggling around there and no one helped me. Let's never be them, because then we're not doing family right. Let's always be those who are first on the scene trying to help. Sometimes it doesn't work. But let's always be the ones who make the effort. If in doubt when talking to someone of same-sex attraction, and you're not too sure what to say, maybe it's something you're not used to, that's fine. Go for Wilson's. It's a classic. Sam said about it last, I think, last week. God loves you. I love you. We, the church, love you. Tell me what it's like to be you. If you don't know what that person's life is, you can't relate. I'm not saying... You know, live a week in their shoes. I'm saying, what is it like to be you? What does it look like to be, you know, a Christian and living and dealing with those things, those things that you can't, you know, you, you want to have that relationship and you want to be with someone, but you can't. But also you realize that Jesus is better and you're living for him. What does that look like for you? Because then that's how you build relationship. That's how you build family. It's how you build pastoral support. So what about sexuality? What about it? God builds a blueprint for how marriage is meant to look and how sex is meant to look. But he also builds a blueprint of how love is meant to look and it looks sacrificial and it looks like Jesus dying on a cross for people who are needing a saviour. And we have a town out there that needs a saviour. No matter who they are. No matter who they're sleeping with. They need a saviour. So yeah, that's where I'm going to end tonight.
where we had another set of questions on the board. Have some time, have some time chatting, and then in about sort of 10, 15 minutes, I will close for us. Thank you. Some excellent, very practical, some very pastoral messages for us there, and uh, uh, for us to take away and to think, actually, yeah, we can, how we can show God's love whilst also maintaining a biblical truth and a biblical position on, on this issue, which is a, is a really difficult issue in our current culture. It's interesting, though, to, to think that actually in Paul's day, when the New Testament was written, it was just as prevalent there. We're just going back, society is just going back to what Roman society, if you like, was like morally. Um, in many respects, actually, it was even worse because if you had power, you could do whatever you liked with whoever you liked. And uh, so it was even worse in some respects. So, uh, yeah, it's great to hear some clear teaching uh, on, on this subject. Do put your questions in.